This is Marilyn Lightstone Reads the Age of Innocence, proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Now, without further ado, here is Marilyn to read us The Age of Innocence, Edith Wharton's 1920 Pulitzer Prize-winning masterpiece. Chapter 3 It invariably happened in the same way. Mrs. Julius Beaufort, on the night of her annual ball, never failed to appear at the opera. Indeed, she always gave her ball on an opera night in order to emphasize her complete superiority to household cares, and her possession of a staff of servants competent to organize every detail of the entertainment in her absence. The Beaufort's house was one of the few in New York that possessed a ballroom. It antedated even Mrs. Manson Mingott's and the Headley Shiverses and at a time when it was beginning to be thought provincial to put a crash over the drawing-room floor and move the furniture upstairs, the possession of a ballroom that was used for no other purpose and left for 364 days of the year to shutter darkness with its gilt chairs stacked in a corner and its chandelier in a bag, this undoubted superiority was felt to compensate for whatever was regrettable in the Beaufort past. Mrs. Archer, who was fond of coining her social philosophy into axioms, had once said, We all have our pet common people. And though the phrase was a daring one, its truth was secretly admitted in many an exclusive bosom. But the Beauforts were not exactly common. Some people said they were even worse. Mrs. Beaufort belonged, indeed, to one of America's most honored families. She had been the lovely Regina Dallas of the South Carolina branch, a penniless beauty introduced to New York society by her cousin, the imprudent Medora Manson, who was always doing the wrong thing from the right motive. When one was related to the Mansons and the Rushforths, one had a droit de cité, as Mr. Sillerton Jackson, who had frequented the Tuileries, called it, in New York society. But did one not forfeit it in marrying Julius Beaufort? The question was, who was Beaufort? He passed for an Englishman, was agreeable, handsome, ill-tempered, hospitable, and witty. He had come to America with letters of recommendation from old Mrs. Manson Miggett's English son-in-law, the banker, and had speedily made himself an important position in the world of affairs. But his habits were dissipated. His tongue was bitter. His antecedents were mysterious— and when Medora Manson announced her cousin's engagement to him, it was felt to be one more act of folly in poor Medora's long record of imprudences. But folly is as often justified of her children as wisdom. And two years after young Mrs. Beaufort's marriage, it was admitted that she had the most distinguished house in New York— no one knew exactly how the miracle was accomplished. She was indolent, passive. The caustic even called her dull. 
but dressed like an idol, hung with pearls, growing younger and blonder and more beautiful each year, she throned in Mr. Beaufort's heavy brown stone palace and drew all the world there without lifting her bejeweled little finger. The knowing people said it was Beaufort himself who trained the servants, taught the chef new dishes, told the gardeners what hothouse flowers to grow for the dinner table and the drawing rooms, selected the guests, brewed the after-dinner punch, and dictated the little notes his wife wrote to her friends. If he did, these domestic activities were privately performed and he presented to the world the appearance of a careless and hospitable millionaire strolling into his own drawing-room with the detachment of an invited guest, and saying, "'My wife's gloxinias are a marvel, aren't they? I believe she gets them out from Kew.' Mr. Beaufort's secret, people were agreed, was the way he carried things off. It was all very well to whisper that he had been helped to leave England by the international banking house in which he had been employed. He carried off that rumor as easily as the rest, though New York's business conscience was no less sensitive than its moral standard. He carried everything before him, and all New York into his drawing-rooms, and for over twenty years now people had said they were going to the Beauforts, with the same tone of security as if they had said they were going to Mrs. Manson Mingott's, and with the added satisfaction of knowing they could get hot canvas-back ducks and vintage wines, instead of the tepid Veuve-Clicquot without a year, and warmed-up croquettes from Philadelphia. Mrs. Beaufort, then, had, as usual, appeared in her box just before the jewel song and when, again as usual, she rose at the end of the third act, drew her opera cloak about her lovely shoulders, and disappeared, New York knew that meant that half an hour later the ball would begin. The Beaufort House was one that New Yorkers were proud to show to foreigners, especially on the night of the annual ball. The Beauforts had been among the first people in New York to own their own red velvet carpet and have it rolled down the steps by their own footmen under their own awning instead of hiring it with the supper and the ballroom chairs. They had also inaugurated the custom of letting the ladies take their cloaks off in the hall, instead of shuffling up to the hostess's bedroom and recurling their hair with the aid of the gas burner. Beaufort was understood to have said that he supposed all his wife's friends had maids who saw to it that they were properly coiffés when they left home. Then the house had been boldly planned, with a ballroom, so that, instead of squeezing through a narrow passage to get to it, as at the Shiverses, one marched solemnly down a vista of enfiladed drawing-rooms, the sea-green, the crimson, and the bouton d'or, seeing from afar the many candled lustres reflected in the polished parquetry, and beyond that the depths of a conservatory where camellias and tree-ferns arched their costly foliage over seats of black and gold bamboo.
Euland Archer, as became a young man of his position, strolled in somewhat late. He had left his overcoat with the silk-stocking footman. The stockings were one of Beaufort's few fatuities. Had dawdled a while in the library, hung with Spanish leather and furnished with buell and malachite, where a few men were chatting and putting on their dancing gloves, and had finally joined the line of guests whom Mrs. Beaufort was receiving on the threshold of the crimson drawing-room. Archer was distinctly nervous. He had not gone back to his club after the opera, as the young bloods usually did, but the night being fine, had walked for some distance up Fifth Avenue before turning back in the direction of the Beaufort's house. He was definitely afraid that the Mingotts might be going too far, that, in fact, they might have Granny Mingott's orders to bring the Countess Olenska to the ball. From the tone of the club box he had perceived how grave a mistake that would be and though he was more than ever determined to see the thing through, he felt less chivalrously eager to champion his betrothed's cousin than before their brief talk at the opera. Wandering on to the Bouton d'Or drawing-room, where Beaufort had had the audacity to hang Love Victorious, the much-discussed nude of Bougereau, Archer found Mrs. Welland and her daughter standing near the ballroom door. Couples were already gliding over the floor beyond. The light of the wax candles fell on revolving tulle skirts, on girlish heads wreathed with modest blossoms, on the dashing aigrettes and ornaments of the young married women's coiffures, and on the glitter of highly glazed shirt fronts and fresh glacé gloves. Miss Welland, evidently about to join the dancers, hung on the threshold, her lilies of the valley in hand. She carried no other bouquet, her face a little pale, her eyes burning with a candid excitement, and there was much hand-clasping, laughing, and pleasantry on which Mrs. Welland, standing slightly apart, shed the beam of a qualified approval. It was evident that Miss Welland was in the act of announcing her engagement, while her mother affected the air of parental reluctance considered suitable to the occasion. Archer paused a moment. It was at his express wish that the announcement had been made, and yet it was not thus that he would have wished to have his happiness known. To proclaim it in the heat and noise of a crowded ballroom was to rob it of the fine bloom of privacy which should belong to things nearest the heart. His joy was so deep that this blurring of the surface left its essence untouched, but he would have liked to keep the surface pure, too. It was something of a satisfaction to find that May Welland shared this feeling. Her eyes fled to his beseechingly, and their look said, Remember, we're doing this because it's right. No appeal could have found a more immediate response in Archer's breast, but he wished that the necessity of their action had been represented by some ideal reason, and not simply by poor Ellen Olenska. 
The group about Miss Welland made way for him with significant smiles, and after taking his share of the felicitations, he drew his betrothed into the middle of the ballroom floor and put his arm about her waist. Now, we shan't have to talk, he said, smiling into her candid eyes as they floated away on the soft waves of the blue Danube. She made no answer. Her lips trembled into a smile, but the eyes remained distant and serious, as if bent on some ineffable vision. Dear, Archer whispered, pressing her to him. It was borne in on him that the first hours of being engaged, even if spent in a ballroom, had in them something grave and sacramental. What a new life it was going to be, with this whiteness, radiance, goodness at one side. The dance over, the two, as became an affianced couple, wandered into the conservatory and sitting behind a tall screen of tree-ferns and camellias, Newland pressed her gloved hands to his lips. "'You see, I did as you asked me to,' she said. "'Yes, I couldn't wait,' he answered, smiling. After a moment he added, "'Only I wish it hadn't had to be at a ball.' "'Yes, I know,' she met his glance comprehendingly. But after all, even here we are alone together, aren't we? Oh, dearest, always, Archer cried. Evidently, she was always going to understand. She was always going to say the right thing. The discovery made the cup of his bliss overflow, and he went on gaily. The worst of it is that I want to kiss you, and I can't. As he spoke, he took a swift glance about the conservatory, assured himself of their momentary privacy, and catching her to him, laid a fugitive pressure on her lips. To counteract the audacity of this proceeding, he led her to a bamboo sofa in a less secluded part of the conservatory, and sitting down beside her, broke a lily of the valley from her bouquet. She sat silent and the world lay like a sunlit valley at their feet. Did you tell my cousin Ellen? she asked presently, as if she spoke through a dream. He roused himself and remembered that he had not done so. Some invincible repugnance to speak of such things to the strange foreign woman had checked the words on his lips. No, no, I hadn't the chance after all, he said fibbing hastily. Ah, she looked disappointed, but gently resolved on gaining her point. You must, then, for I didn't either, and I shouldn't like her to think. Of course not. But aren't you, after all, the person to do it? She pondered on this. If I'd done it at the right time, yes, but now that there's been a delay, I think you must explain that I'd asked you to tell her at the opera before our speaking about it to everybody here. Otherwise, she might think I had forgotten her. You see, she's one of the family, and she's been away so long that she's, well, she's rather, she's rather sensitive. Archer looked at her glowingly. 
Dear and great angel, of course I'll tell her. He glanced a trifle apprehensively toward the crowded ballroom. But I haven't seen her yet. Has she come? No, no. At the last minute she decided not to. At the last minute? He echoed, betraying his surprise that she should ever have considered the alternative possible. Yes, she's awfully fond of dancing, the young girl answered simply. But suddenly she made up her mind that her dress wasn't smart enough for a ball, though we thought it so lovely, and so my aunt had to take her home. Oh, well, said Archer, with happy indifference. Nothing about his betrothed pleased him more than her resolute determination to carry to its utmost limit that ritual of ignoring the unpleasant in which they had both been brought up. She knows as well as I do, he reflected, the real reason of her cousin staying away. But I shall never let her see by the least sign that I am conscious of there being a shadow of a shade on poor Ellen Olenska's reputation. Chapter 4 In the course of the next day, the first of the usual betrothal visits were exchanged. The New York ritual was precise and inflexible in such matters, and in conformity with it, Newland Archer first went with his mother and sister to call on Mrs. Welland, after which he and Mrs. Welland and May drove out to old Mrs. Manson Mingott's to receive that venerable ancestress's blessing. A visit to Mrs. Manson Mingott was always an amusing episode to the young man, the house in itself was already an historic document, though not, of course, as venerable as certain other old family houses in University Place and Lower Fifth Avenue. Those were of the purest 1830, with a grim harmony of cabbage-rose-garlanded carpets, rosewood consoles, round arch fireplaces with black marble mantles, and immense glazed bookcases of mahogany, whereas old Mrs. Mingott, who had built her house later, had bodily cast out the massive furniture of her prime, and mingled with the Mingott heirlooms the frivolous upholstery of the Second Empire. It was her habit to sit in a window of her sitting-room on the ground floor, as if watching calmly for life and fashion to flow northward to her solitary doors. She seemed in no hurry to have them come, for her patience was equal by her confidence. She was sure that presently the hoardings— the quarries, the one-story saloons, the wooden greenhouses in ragged gardens, and the rocks from which goats surveyed the scene, would vanish before the advance of residences as stately as her own. Perhaps, for she was an impartial woman, even statelier, and that the cobblestones over which the old chattering omnibuses bumped would be replaced by smooth asphalt such as people reported having seen in Paris. Meanwhile, as everyone she cared to see came to her, and she could fill her rooms as easily as the Beauforts and without adding a single item to the menu of her suppers, she did not suffer from her geographic isolation. 
the immense accretion of flesh which had descended on her in middle life like a flood of lava on a doomed city had changed her from a plump, active little woman with a neatly turned foot and ankle into something as vast and august as a natural phenomenon. She had accepted this submergence as philosophically as all her other trials. And now, in extreme old age, was rewarded by presenting to her mirror an almost unwrinkled expanse of firm pink and white flesh, in the center of which the traces of a small face survived, as if awaiting excavation. A flight of smooth double chins led down to the dizzy depths of a still snowy bosom veiled in snowy muslins that were held in place by a miniature portrait of the late Mr. Mingott and around and below, wave after wave of black silk surged away over the edges of a capacious armchair, with two tiny white hands poised like gulls on the surface of the billows. The burden of Mrs. Manson Mingott's flesh had long since made it impossible for her to go up and down stairs, and with characteristic independence she had made her reception room upstairs and established herself, in flagrant violation of all the New York proprieties, on the ground floor of her house, so that, as you sat in her sitting-room window with her, you caught, through a door that was always open, and a looped-back yellow damask portiere, the unexpected vista of a bedroom, with a huge low bed upholstered like a sofa, and a toilet table with frivolous lace flounces, and a gilt-framed mirror. Her visitors were startled and fascinated by the foreignness of this arrangement, which recalled scenes in French fiction, and architectural incentives to immorality such as the simple American had never dreamed of. That was how women with lovers lived in the wicked old societies, in apartments with all the rooms on one floor, and all the indecent propinquities that their novels described. It amused Newland Archer, who had secretly situated the love scenes of Monsieur Ducamor in Mrs. Mingott's bedroom, to picture her blameless life led in the stage setting of adultery. But he said to himself, with considerable admiration, that if a lover had been what she wanted, the intrepid woman would have had him, too. To the general relief, the Countess Olenska was not present in her grandmother's drawing-room during the visit of the betrothed couple. Mrs. Mingott said she had gone out, which, on a day of such glaring sunlight and at the shopping hour, seemed in itself an indelicate thing for a compromised woman to do. But at any rate, it spared them the embarrassment of her presence, and the faint shadow that her unhappy past might seem to shed on their radiant future. The visit went off successfully, as was to have been expected. Old Mrs. Mingott was delighted with the engagement, which, being long foreseen by watchful relatives, had been carefully passed upon in family council, 
and the engagement ring, a large, thick sapphire set in invisible claws, met with her unqualified admiration. It's a new setting. Of course it shows the stone beautifully, but it looks a little bare to old-fashioned eyes, Mrs. Welland had explained, with a conciliatory side-glance at her future son-in-law. Old-fashioned eyes? I hope you don't mean mine, my dear. I like all the novelties, said the ancestress, lifting the stone to her small, bright orbs, which no glasses had ever disfigured. Very handsome, she added, returning the jewel. Very liberal. In my time, a cameo set in pearls was thought sufficient. But it's the hand that sets off the ring, isn't it, my dear Mr. Archer? And she waved one of her tiny hands with small, pointed nails and rolls of aged fat encircling the wrist like ivory bracelets. Mine was modeled in Rome by the great Ferrigiani. You should have May's done. No doubt he'll have it done, my child. Oh, her hand is large. It's these modern sports that spread the joints. But the skin is white. And when's the wedding to be? She broke off, fixing her eyes on Archer's face. Oh, Mrs. Welland murmured, while the young man, smiling at his betrothed, replied, As soon as ever it can, if only you'll back me up, Mrs. Mingott. "'We must give them time to get to know each other a little better, Mamma," Mrs. Welland interposed, with the proper affectation of reluctance, to which the ancestress rejoined, "'Know each other? Fiddlesticks! Everybody in New York has always known everybody. Let the young man have his way, my dear. Don't wait till the bubble's off the wine. Marry them before Lent. I may catch pneumonia any winter now, and I want to give the wedding breakfast.' These successive statements were received with the proper expressions of amusement, incredulity, and gratitude, and the visit was breaking up in a vein of mild pleasantry when the door opened to admit the Countess Olenska, who entered in bonnet and mantle, followed by the unexpected figure of Julius Beaufort. There was a cousinly murmur of pleasure between the ladies, and Mrs. Mingott held out Ferrigiani's model to the banker. Ha! Beaufort, this is a rare favor. She had an odd foreign way of addressing men by their surnames. Thanks. I wish it might happen oftener, said the visitor in his easy, arrogant way. I'm generally so tied down, but I met the Countess Ellen in Madison Square, and she was good enough to let me walk home with her. Ah, I hope the house will be gayer now that Ellen's here, cried Mrs. Mingott with a glorious effrontery. Sit down, sit down, Beauforth. Push up the yellow armchair. Now I've got you, I want a good gossip. I hear your ball was magnificent, and I understand you invited Mrs. Lemuel Struthers. <laughs> well, I have a curiosity to see the woman myself. She had forgotten her relatives, who were drifting out into the hall under Ellen Olenska's guidance. Old Mrs. Mingott had always professed a great admiration for Julius Beaufort, and there was a kind of kinship in their cool, domineering way and their shortcuts through the conventions. 
Now she was eagerly curious to know what had decided the Beauforts to invite, for the first time, Mrs. Lemuel Struthers, the widow of Struthers' shoe polish, who had returned the previous year from a long initiatory sojourn in Europe to lay siege to the tight little citadel of New York. Of course, if you and Regina invite her, the thing is settled. Well, we need new blood and new money, and I hear she's still very good-looking, the carnivorous old lady declared. In the hall, while Mrs. Welland and May drew on their furs, Archer saw that the Countess Olenska was looking at him with a faintly questioning smile. Of course, you know already about May and me, he said answering her look with a shy laugh. She scolded me for not giving you the news last night at the opera. I had her orders to tell you that we were engaged, but I, I couldn't in that crowd. The smile passed from Countess Olenska's eyes to her lips. She looked younger, more like the bold brown Ellen Mingott of his boyhood. Of course I know, yes, and I'm so glad. But one doesn't tell such things first in a crowd. The ladies were on the threshold, and she held out her hand. Goodbye. Come and see me some day, she said, still looking at Archer. In the carriage on the way down Fifth Avenue, they talked pointedly of Mrs. Mingott, of her age, her spirit, and all her wonderful attributes. No one alluded to Ellen Olenska. But Archer knew that Mrs. Welland was thinking, It's a mistake for Ellen to be sane. The very day after her arrival, parading up Fifth Avenue at the crowded hour with Julius Beaufort. And the young man himself mentally added, And she ought to know that a man who's just engaged doesn't spend his time calling on married women. But I dare say in the set she's lived in, they do. They never do anything else and in spite of the cosmopolitan views on which he prided himself, he thanked heaven that he was a New Yorker, and about to ally himself with one of his own kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads The Age of Innocence. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Zneimer. This is our fourth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn reading Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, and A Christmas Carol, if you haven't already. Also, you can support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in the iTunes and Android podcast stores. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.